Welcome to Watchers of Switzerland. I'm Faith Sotteri, international senior watch buyer. And today I'm joined by watch journalist, acting editor-in-chief of Wallpaper magazine, and longtime friend of Watchers of Switzerland, Bill Prince. Thank you, Faye, for that introduction. That's very kind. Oh, my pleasure. Um, we've recently done um, um, a video cast and some work on complications and what goes on inside the watches in this wonderful industry of horology that we have. And I thought we could talk about um, the external, the metals, mm. um, what materials um, primarily watches are made from, um, what the most popular uh, watch types are. Uh, we're going to focus a bit more on um, precious metal and uh, combination pieces. Um, and I'd like to talk about why brands feel they need to enhance the timepiece by out making it out of elite metal, precious metal, um, and enhancing it with gems, potentially. Um, if you think it uh, enhances the functionality of a watch, um, is precious metal a signifier to either the client or the brand? Um, and how brands really push the boundaries um, with unique or fusion uh, materials. Mm. So if we could talk about some of those Well, that's today. a lot of ground to cover. Should we begin? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you and I had a brief conversation and we were talking about um, mixed metal and bimetal mm. watches previously. Mm. Well, it's, it's very interesting and thank you for that introduction. It's set up in my own mind why we're here to talk about materials. We talk about models a lot. We talk about movements a lot. You and Mark were discussing complications in an earlier video. But really materials is the, the third leg on the stool, so to speak. It, it, it's, it's the third defining element of the watch we choose to wear. And I suppose we started this conversation around bimetal, which we see generationally trends come and go. Bimetal was, when we say bimetal, of course, we mean a blend of steel and yellow or rose gold. It doesn't necessarily have to involve either of those. It's the combination of two materials and they tend to be elite materials outside of steel. But Bimetal is coming back in that sort of generational trend shift that we see around us all the time. The 80s are now top dollar in terms of fashion. And bimetal watches were very popular in the 80s. Obviously, they were predated by almost half a century. Um, watchmakers have been blending metals in watches as, um, since watches were made, but particularly from the Art Deco era in the 20s and 30s onwards, particularly at Cartier. But fundamentally, the bimetal watch we were discussing is that throwback to the 80s when they represented, as you described it, an almost staging post between the traditional stainless steel watch and what we would regard as a fine timepiece in gold, which was traditionally held as being the ultimate wristwatch to own. And it's why legend has it, I've never seen it. When you worked in a particular company for many years, you may be gifted a gold watch. And that was the ultimate. That's what a watch should be, and that's when you got a gold one. And obviously, as we saw in the 80s, um, money started to move around a lot more quickly. Uh, a lot of younger people got hold of money a lot earlier in life. And that generational shift created a desire to own a watch that sort of telegraphed the attributes of a gold watch without being the gold watch of your retirement. And I think that's what fed into the bimetal craze in the 80s. Obviously, a lot of brands investing into the development of these pieces. But we're here to talk about a much broader set of materials than simply bimetal. And I think what has been one of the great engaging stories of the last 10 or 20 years has been the role of materials in particularly case making. And as we'll talk about a little later on, that's now fed into um, bracelet design and even the materials used in non-steel or non um, uh, material, sorry, and also the materials that are used in um, bracelets and straps, which is moving a new era of materials 
And obviously what we'll talk about a little later on is how these materials themselves are changing and how their fabrication is changing as we move into an era that is very reflective of sustainability mm -hmm. and upcycling and recycling of product. But to talk a little bit about um, materials, well, where should we start? Because I think we fundamentally look at a watch as, as we look at a watch case as being the, the, the vessel within which the movement sits. Um, but the case itself is an extraordinarily complex and complicated piece of machinery, in effect. Um, some cases have 18, 20, sometimes up to 30 separate elements. So being able to combine those various materials within a rather complex case construction gives brands the opportunity to explore different aesthetic results. And I think that's why particularly uh, high-end watch brands who have collections that they are able to grow and they want to exceed the limitations of a particular material are very adept at um, changing out the materials within collections. And I think that's what gives the customer base the opportunity to choose between a simple iteration in steel, a more complicated iteration in bimetal, um, going through into what we describe as, I suppose, unique uh, proprietary alloys such as we're looking at the Hublot Magic Gold here. I mean, brands operate within the uh, confines of a highly specialized uh, industry that is allowed to propagate its own alloys, which they like to name. So Omega have recently launched their own copper gold alloy. So there's a great deal of experimentation that goes on with brands. And I suppose within internally, it's almost a, an element of the competitive set that they, they are playing with as long as, as alongside the the uh, ultra complications and um, other devices by which they add uh, brand equity, the materials that they choose to use and how they use them and perhaps how they even name their own materials is part of their competitive set. So that's, I think, primarily why brands enjoy working in a combination of materials. So that's a, a sort of talks to the um, uniqueness and the, the boundaries which the, the brands push themselves um, to give a point of difference as well, I suppose, because whilst not all gold is equal. Um, it does give the it it does give the brand something to test themselves with, I suppose, mm. and then it's it and and also offer to the client something that you can't buy with another with another manufacturer and another yeah. brand. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of putting it. It it, it it's a way of um, making more exclusive, perhaps a, a model or a collection that to the common observer might um, share competencies with other brands. How, how can you demark your own brand? And materials is obviously a very clear and direct way of flagging your brand against other brands, even when you may be, with respect, sharing um, calibers that have been produced mm -hmm. um, as part of a group or have been purchased third party. So materials, and we know several brands, and we, we're used to seeing brands come to market now, and perhaps as we are much more transparent around um, the role of movements and where those movements originate, but perhaps the movement may sit in other, model, in other brands' models, but the execution of the case material will be unique to that brand. And I think we've seen that, well, we've seen interesting confluences between, again, the use of um, non-traditional materials in watch cases, um, elevating a brand that has possibly come to market much later than several other brands that have shared the movement that they're featuring. But we should talk a little bit about individual cases, no pun intended. But um, <laughs> I think I think bimetal is a great starting point because with respect, um, I think bimetal has been somewhat divisive over the years. I mean, it's rather like that optical illusion where you're looking at a bit picture and you either see the reclining woman or you see the mountainside. You know, it's you can't see both at the same time. And I think people look at bimetal. Some will see, in the case of a steel and yellow gold watch, a steel watch that has been slightly pimped up, 
by, by the advent of gold being attached to it. Whereas other people will see a gold watch that has been sublimated with steel and won't reflect on that as being, well, that's, is that a true gold watch? Because steel's added. And I feel that's distinctly the wrong way to look at bimetal. You have to look at it in the whole, in the round. Is the design, is the aesthetic attractive? Is that combination attractive? And it sounds bizarre, but I think this slight um, reluctance to absorb uh, some of the bimetal executions we see uh, reflect as a cultural, uh, um, how would you describe it? A sort of a cultural affliction which dates back nearly a thousand years to the rule of tincture, which was um, the rules by which heraldic devices were first created. And we're talking 900 years ago. I think it was formulated into the rules of tincture several centuries later. But what that stated very plainly was metal shouldn't touch metal. And particularly in those days, they were talking about silver and gold. Silver and gold should not connect. So that was led through, and then there are other rules of tincture around coloration and why certain colors shouldn't sit upon other colors. This was all about trying to create the boldest and obviously the most <laughs> frightening heraldic device you can come up with. So we won't go too far down the route of heraldry, but the point was these rules about how you use various metals have existed for nearly a millennium. So when people are discussing whether they like a bimetal watch or don't like a bimetal watch, they're just replicating a conversation that was taking place in the 13th century. So we shouldn't be too worried that we can't make our minds up about bimetal watches. They come into fashion, they go out of fashion. Right now they're back in fashion. And you could, answer, you could ask why are they back? I think there's been a huge amount of interest shown in steel watches, particularly steel tool watches, particularly those created in the luxury segment in the 70s. And the, the Newtonian laws of physics tell us you know, every action has a reaction and the action of being fascinated by steel watches has led to the reaction of people thinking, well, I want to be a bit different. How can I be a bit different? And we've seen, for instance, with a brand like Tudor come to market. I mean, Tudor brought silver back into watch cases a couple of years ago. Silver had been used in watch cases before, but it wasn't something that we'd ever been, um, hadn't been current for about 50 years, I'd imagine, but there has been a few examples. So silver came back with Tudor. And then obviously Tudor launched in bronze, which is a case material that had been used. Panerai had used bronze before. And Tudor, like Panerai, brought bronze back into tool watches that had an association with the sea and seafaring and submarines. So we have this point now where materials are changing to affect a choice in a collection and for a brand to be able to offer a point of difference when they feel that perhaps the focus is too heavily set in one particular direction. Uh, on, yeah, and namely steel. There's yeah. a couple of points there mm. on, um, to touch on the where you were talking about in terms of bimetal. Do you think that um, in an industry which is, um, we say it often, we're very lucky to work in this industry, it's not a necessity. Mm. We're, there's a lot of conversation about cost of living at the moment. Yeah. Do you think that we will see an increase in watches, sort of bimetal, where people are potentially being a little bit more conservative in terms of where their money goes versus a precious metal watch? Because there is a price difference as well. Yeah. So you're going up from the steel or down from, from, the, from the mixed metal. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think we, we won't talk about the secondary market for obvious reasons, but we're seeing some quite aggressive pricing for steel watches, particularly in the, in the high-end luxury brands. Mm -hmm. And suddenly a bimetal, and in some cases a full gold watch, is starting to look affordable, or at least very high value for money compared to what is effectively a base alloy steel watch. And I think that is what's um, focusing people's attentions at the moment. It's like, well, if they're asking that much for a steel watch, what can I find that's not simply steel or only steel? 
And that is driving interest, I think, in bimetal again, with this sort of cultural moment where we are reflecting a bit more on those, what we called the, go, well, I called the go-go 80s. And what at the time was seen as an era of freedom, choice, broadening of opportunity. I mean, the 70s have been a very tough decade. And then the 80s came along. We had deregulation of the banking system, which put a lot of money into a lot of people's hands. And suddenly people wanted to explore what that money could do and how they could demonstrate the fact they had it. And actually, that's why we see in a lot of films at the time, we saw Crockett and Tubbs in Miami Vice. You saw the, you saw the bi-metal watch come through very quickly as a real cool identifier of an individual who had money to spend, but as I said earlier, didn't necessarily want to wear a gold watch because that had an inference of something you achieved later in life or you, waited, you were handed as you stepped away from your job at the end of your career. Suddenly, here was a watch that had all of the associations of gold, but also had that kind of cool um, attachments that a steel sports watch, which is effectively what these watches were at the time, came from. So I think, I think you're absolutely right, Faye. I think there's a great deal of interest now in, in looking outside of what is potentially an overheated market or indeed slightly overpopulated market and everyone wants a point of difference mm. i mean everyone everyone wants a point of difference if they can find one particularly if they're investing into a fine mechanical watch and we all like to have a conversation piece we all want to have a story we can tell and i think what we talk about in materials particularly when we come into the more recent material choices such as ceramic which um which first appeared in a watch back in the 80s. IWC, interestingly, used ceramic for the first time in one of its high-complication collections, the mm -hmm. Da Vinci, which, looking where ceramic went next, is slightly an odd um, positioning for it. But we talk about ceramic coming through in the 90s, and then in the, in the noughties particularly, we saw carbon come through very strongly as well. And the attributes of those brought a different sort of conversational um, starter point. Um, but they all serve the same purpose. They all created a point of difference. So based on that, in terms of the, you referenced the signifier, do you think um, the changing in material um, uh, supports or changes the functionality of a watch? Effectively, yeah. yeah. I, th I think materials are chosen in the first instance. I mean, I, I know um, outside of the core uh, fascination with watches that we share, Faye, people are slightly cynical around um, certain new materials coming to market. Um, fundamentally, they are brought to market because they solve one or other problem. And it could be around weight, it could be around um, resistance, just the wear and tear. And obviously, as we know, for years, the watch industry has borrowed from um, the aeronautical industry, from the industrial military complex in effect, to discover and to reuse incredibly tough, tough um, uh, materials in watchmaking because they solve a functional issue, which is how do you protect something that is incredibly vulnerable on your wrist, that can be banged and banged and banged. And I think that's the start of that functionality process. And then after that, it, it, it's imbued with other qualities. I mean, for instance, I mean, the carbon tech Panerai, Carbotech Panerai is, is, you know, supremely light. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's adds, it adds value. But then again, in the context of, of a bronze watch, you know, you know you're wearing a watch with, with heft. And for another part of the market, wearing something substantial on the wrist is what gives wrist watch wearing its attractiveness, you know. Yeah, but uh, wrist porn, effectively. Wrist <laughs> um, and, but talking about the bronze, mm. you've, uh, IWC do it. Um, mm. they, they, there's a few brands that have started to play with um, with, with bronze or introduce, not play with, but uh, introduce and, and explore. What I quite like about that and going back to it being a unique piece is that bronze will always put the patina. Yeah, yeah. So it will always change. You will, that will give it its um, exclusiveness and it, or its uniqueness to the wearer because as the time goes on, it will, it, it, 
it, it will change it. But um, Sorry, I spoke over you then when you used the actual word that needed to be heard, which is about patina. But um, to your point, Faye, about um, the bronze, it was interesting. When it, when it started to come back into the market about 10 years ago, Panerai did a, a beautiful piece. And, um, and obviously others have followed suit. It was, it was more of a poetic execution. And in those particular pieces, it was talking to the heritage of those brands around designing watches des designed to go to the sea in effect. And obviously the bronze we recognize from the Scaphander, which is the name of the old fashioned helmet worn by um, divers before the in invention of scuba. And all of those tropes played out in the watches and the added additional functionality, if you want to use this term, because I do think how the wearer treats a watch, uses a watch, is a form of its functionality. It does offer this ability to patina, meaning that it discolors, it, it takes on a hue entirely of its own, depending on how it's lived, depending whether it's ever been in the sea, whether it's, it's, it's affected by climatic conditions. To your point, in terms of what you referenced, um, Tudor and their uh, silver watch, mm. uh, there's a reason why watches aren't made in silver, it's just such a soft alloy, yeah. and it marks incredibly mm. well. Uh, yeah. Which doesn't lend itself particularly to a sort of a uti utilitarian uh, yeah. timepiece, whereas um, the some of the materials we're seeing now, whether it's the Carbotech, whether it's carbon fibre, we've um, we were introduced to DLC a few years ago, yeah. um, and all of these combinations that are supporting makes it just much more wearable for for the for for, for the user. Whereas it's not to say that can't be worn this this beautiful Cartier Panther, but um, mm. there's a there's a different element to it, and gold is much more. Um, it will scratch. It will, it will scratch much quicker. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting point because, as you say, as much as watch designers, watch brands, want to create watches that are redoubtable, that robust and, and, and long-lasting, there are customers who actually do want their own personality to shine through in their watch. And as we've seen again, to go back to the vintage market, you know, some of the most valuable watches are some of the most distressed in effect because they carry patina once again, whether yep. it's faded bezels or faded dials even. But I think to your point about um, uh, whether distress becomes personalization, that's where you kind of choose which metal you wish to wear. And uh, the bronze has been highly successful. I would argue more successful than I would have anticipated given that it does patina. And given it has some operational issues, which is why case backs on bronze watches tend not to be bronze. They'll mm. be bronze colored, but bronze against the skin will, will discolor the skin eventually. So there are, there are sort of uh, working, there are some workarounds required depending on the materials you use. But from the brand's point of view, what the materials really bring is, is, is flexibility of execution. And I think we saw that most blindingly when the Royal Oak Offshore launched in the first full carbon case at Audemars Piguet in the, in the 2007, I believe, in the uh, Alinghi and um, limited edition model for the America's Cup. And suddenly the, the offshore is quite a complicated, complex piece of case engineering. And obviously it's chronographs, it has pushers. So there's a fundamentally huge amount of work you can do to swap out all those different elements. And I think for brands, as much as they want to create a broad uh, collection, they want to offer choice to their market they also enjoy, just downright enjoy, being able to play with all the different ingredients. And they're always searching for ingredients that will fit neatly with one another. It's, it's their creative element. If they're not um, bringing out a new collection, which we don't see year on mm. year. Um, and it's interesting because you were talking about um, Audemars Piquet, mm. two collections effectively. So how, how do they enhance that? How does it grow? How do they um, have a um, appeal to a, a wider um, audience? Mm. Because it with the... Um, Royal Oak initially, it was just started in steel. Um, but 
the so for example if we're looking at something like the big bang mm. um with with hublot um and they introduced in the gold this year um so what they've done is the watch itself isn't new this is the spirit mm. um but they've introduced it in yellow gold which we've not seen but they've with their own alloys they've named it um magic magic gold, gold. yeah um the magical properties of gold being in this case that um, hublot argue this is unscratchable which comes back to your earlier point, Faye, what would, what would perhaps prevent someone investing into a gold watch? Well, it's going to get marked. Should we test it? Go on. <laughs> I do have a friend who dropped his gold watch on the second day of ownership and put a massive dink in it. It and, did. And it did break his heart. He's moved on, but it's, it's, he's decided it's personalised it and it's my watch and I've, I dinked it. So everything's, we go forward equal, which is fine. If someone else had dinked it, it'd have been another story. But um, well, my point is, so brands are still working through all of the opportunities that that they are able to develop to develop in-house some brands are in, fundamentally they are foundries in terms of what they can create in materials others are constantly in searching for opportunities and they are negotiating exclusivities with with um with outside companies who are producing these extraordinary uh, composites which is effectively what we're looking at when we're looking at carbon I mean, there's, it's a limitless list now almost of, um, of combinations of carbon that you can now find on the market. But what they boil down to is that they are um, composite materials, which are constantly being renewed, improved, refined to create the best, best um, combination of, in, in most cases, lightness, which is, I think, probably one of the more valuable attributes now at the moment. We could discuss this in, maybe this is for another chat, um, Faye, but it's quite interesting that some some parts of the business rely on, I remember picking up one of the writing for Bentley watches many years ago and it was, it was heavy. Yeah, you it don't was, want to fall off a boat with that on your No, list. you would keep going down, I'm afraid. But so I think like, but there are, so there's a market for watches that, that carry heft. And I think the full gold execution of watches is often worn by people who like to feel that they have something on their wrist. By the same token, the more contemporary marketplace seems to reflect um, the, the desire to wear something that's very light and therefore doesn't feel it's burdening you as you wear it. So that combination of lightness and robustness. And if there's a sort of desirable fleck in the composite, if there's something that gives it a standout, then all the better, I think. Yeah. So the, the functionality does tie in with the, with the metal type based on a sports watch probably needs to be quite light. Um, a dress watch, um, we, we, we tend to see those a lot more in precious mm. metal. Uh, for evening wear because it enhances the elegance of, of, of a gentleman in a suit. Um, it's just the creativity. Who do you think does it well? Who plays well with materials? I think the pioneers um, are still working extremely well. We mentioned Odomar Piguet for introducing, I think, popularising bimetal um, in the 70s when they launched the second iteration of the original Royal Oak 1502 as a smaller ladies piece and very quickly from that moment on introduced bimetal and then obviously full metals, full elite metals into the, into the range. And Odemar Piguet particularly, as we discussed earlier in the case of the offshore, had to continue to work in, in material. And um, two years ago, I think we saw that beautiful ceram back ceramic with the rose gold um, screw heads. Um, marking out the iconic uh, bezel with its eight screws. I mean, they continue to play with material combinations brilliantly. Cartier have always worked um, extremely well in uh, combination. Uh, I think the Art Deco piece that we think of when we think back into the 20s, particularly around the, the tank, um, there's executions of the Santos, which are just stunning and have been made in, in 
virtually every combination of elite and base metal you could imagine. Um, I think in terms of the, in the newer composites, I think you're talking to brands such as Panama, Ricardo Tech, Breitling have done a lot of work. They launched their own, which an interesting sub uh, story is, is how brands really do define their, uh, themselves by taking ownership of particular alloys and composites. So in the case of Breitling, they launched a composite known as Brightlight recently, which is supreme. It's eight times stronger than, um, uh, more scratch resistant than steel, I believe. It's, it is extraordinary substance and incredibly light. Um, so there is there is work going on constantly. Um, Udis Nardan, we can talk about um, materials very very happily. Hublot, of course. I think Hublot is interesting. It brought gold to the market with a rubber strap for the first time, which was again a combination of materials. As we move out of cases alone, we can talk about case and, and strap or bracelet material. And that combination of Hublot's launch project, which was to launch a rubber strap on a uh, with a gold case it was kind of unheard of at that point in the, at the start of the 80s so you know there was a lot of there's a lot of experimentation a lot of innovation and a certain amount of evolution that has gone along with the um, not just the invention and the, and the development of new composites but also with the fact that the consumer now is likely to own more than one watch and before you then had to make a judgment call what do i need okay i need a stainless steel watch my life my job my career means I need a long-lasting, robust watch. Or, do you know what? I sit at a desk all day. I'm driven to work. Who knows? So a gold watch is fine. Nothing's going to come near me. Nothing's going to go near my gold watch. Now we have the choice. We don't have to make these dis distinctions. So we can experiment. We said, of course, I need a stainless steel watch. I need a full gold watch. But I also want a car Carbotech watch. I also want a ceramic watch. There's all these opportunities to explore different materials. And you don't really want a watch case just lined up with exactly the same watches unless you're monomaniacally collecting steel, um, steel tool watches or something. So um, um, since the 18th century, watches have been adorned with um, enamel miniatures and gemstones. So blurring the lines a little bit between jewelry um, and watches. So a little bit more, potentially there were more female led the, these pieces. Mm. And as you referenced evolution, as we've gone through, we've been able to see that change a little and how watches have um, a lot more uh, gem set and it's not necessarily uh, we'll talk about all the we won't talk about all the different type of settings so obviously snow setting parve etc the, the list is the list is quite extensive mm. and the artwork behind it is the whole the, the artistry and the the creativity from the brands but how do you think that has moved from it one identifying as a sort of a woman's watch into um, a much more um, it's not gender specific. Yeah, yeah. I think what I think what's really interesting about the blend of metals and elite metals, particularly in watches, is that they have, by and large, always remained gender free. So whether it's a, a stainless steel and yellow gold or stainless steel and rose gold, they've inevitably often been um, offered in both uh, in both sizings for women and for men. Now we really look at watches as, as being non-gendered, and I think bimetal particularly has led the charge in being being that probably one of the uh, few luxury products that have remained non-gendered even when going into what as we as you describe it Faye jewelry based executions but what we've seen much more recently I think is the uh, arrival of gem setting into um, larger pieces and not just larger pieces that can be worn by men but into pieces that traditionally wouldn't have been considered to be worthy of gem setting which is time only often mm -hmm. stainless steel watches. And I think that is an evolution. 
Um, Patek Philippe, when they launched the 24, they produced a stainless steel watch, but they made sure that they were able to offer it with diamond setting. And I think there's a lot of examples of where gem setting has become another design cue, another iteration, rather than the obligatory up, uh, what's the word, the, rather than becoming simply a way of adding value to a particular timepiece. It's I've, become intrinsic to the design of that timepiece. And we see it in male models now. Uh, sorry, we see it in models now where the indexes are in diamonds in a very simple execution. I mean, Zenith are doing a wonderful job in Defy at the moment producing uh, gem, set, gem setting within watches. And of course, we see the execution of rainbow. Um, well, that was the example yeah. I was going to use. It's not just um, sort of an explosion. There has been an explosion from ind indices and, and stretches yeah. to sort of fully gold set eye-watering um, sort of uh, models. It wasn't that long ago we would not see, we would see a steel watch with diamonds brands, mm. um, particularly some of the older manufacturers which just wouldn't do it. It was not mm. part of their, their ethos. They felt um, precious um, gem set should only be reserved for precious metal. And I'm talking for sort of a 15 year capacity, mm. like mm. time, time frame, it's not that long. And now we're seeing, um, you referenced sort of rainbow, we've got a lot of brands that are playing with those colours. It's not just a traditional elegant timepiece, but they're going completely, they're pushing the boundaries, they're really exploring and having a lot of fun because they're experimenting with all these all, all these options, but you've got to take it seriously as well because that, that you know, the, the, the setting, getting, sourcing the, sorting the stones and that's not going to be you know they're, they're not inexpensive watches if you have if it, there, there are a variety of um watches on the market that have a um the the, the rainbow effect they are scarce with every brand that that buy that or they're not produced in large quantities um, probably because they're not to everyone's taste and whether you want to spend that much money you're going to be wearing in 10 years time is a slightly different mm. matter but the fact that the brands are actually experimenting, having fun, just being really playful. I think that's testimony to, to them in the same way that the way that they experiment with the materials. It's what else can we do? Because the Defy isn't new, but what they've done is they've, the, the white model was a limited edition that they brought out this year, or Zenith that brought out. Um, that piece isn't new, but their, their execution of it. And it's not gender specific, mm. to your point um, a few moments ago. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right, Faye. I think that we're talking about relatively um, small changes to watches. I'm talking traditionally now, that would occasion a brand to say, we're, this year we are able to offer you this watch. And, it used, and the, the changes were incremental, I mean, with respect. They were, we're offering it in a slightly different size or, or maybe another metal, um, maybe with a different dial execution. But fundamentally, there are guardrails to how watches were being produced and being sold. What's happened in the last 15 to 20 years is those guardrails have come down considerably now because brands recognize that if you stay too close to the core offer of the watch business, then people aren't going to be excited. They're just generally not going to be enticed into buying a watch. So the opportunity now, movements take several years to um, to develop. Um, you can't really execute a new movement um, in in record time, particularly if it's going to have a new uh, complication attached to it. So what you can do is you can start to work with materials and particularly with colorways. And colorways are largely brought into the watch by gem setting. You can obviously change colour dials, you can use lacquering, you can enamelise, but fundamentally 
is enamelize a word? You can enamel, you can um, uh, bring in different colors into the jars. But gem setting gives you this extraordinary um, panoply of opportunities to play with. And again, I think the gender split around wearing decorated watches is changing considerably. And I think it will change again now that brands are actively and publicly announcing they're working in lab-grown diamonds. Taipei announced a fully set lab-grown diamond watch this year. And that's suddenly... Very much to speak of, of, yeah, of, of the fair, actually. It really was. Least. And I think there was, there was lots of interesting pieces at the fair. But the fact that this was coming from Taglia in the first instance, which is a brand based on innovation and technical uh, achievements, but they're focusing on the, on the actual diamond setting of that watch. And it fundamentally stabilizes supply when you know that those diamonds are being grown. So you can calculate how many watches you can make. You can calculate how much they're going to cost you to make because you know all of the uh, elements, uh, elements yeah. are, are, are preordained in a sense because you're creating them from scratch. No pun intended. <laughs> so th this is going to change again. How I, I, I was watching on the stand how many people came up to view the watch because it was extraordinary to see. But I mean, it was completely gender blurred. I mean, it was, men were as interested in that piece as women for obvious reasons. So I think gem setting is becoming another... I wouldn't say tool in the toolbox because, but it was something that was that was held by the by the um, by the manufacturers. Frankly, the the probably the top three or four brands had access to, or they had the individuals concerned who could enamel, who could gem set. Now this is an operation that is it's 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 it's, it's passing out into the wider watch world. And that's giving you far more choice. And you mentioned the rainbow, of course, where you can all think of a very, very celebrated rainbow um, bezeled timepiece, um, limited by the ability to get hold of the stones that blend in the rainbow color as perfectly as possible. I mean, I'm not a jeweler. I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between one or the next, but those who can will tell you that the execution is where the, where the value lies. But because they're so limited in their executions, it means that they will become and are becoming highly desirable watches in their own right. And it's not something that you would expect from something that is fact, effectively a decorated watch. Well, that's the point. The, the collar, if you know, in terms mm. of the, whether it's a, a, a gem, a diamond set, whether it's sapphires, diamonds, mm. or in this case that we're talking about um, sort of more rainbows, or any, any, any setting, I suppose, it just shows off the artistry, creative skill, and the workmanship mm -hmm. that we are used to talking about from the inside out, other than enamel dialing, which we talk a lot about in terms of yeah. how the, the work that goes into it. Um, and it really does show off the full um, sort of grandiose potential mm. of, of the brands and, and what they're capable of. Um, and none, they also make them piece, they'll be piece uniques because they can never be exactly yeah. the same. Whilst brands actually don't talk about them unless it's a limited edition, mm. um, ultimately you'll never, you'll never, they can't, they can't be the natural stones. But I think the lab grown element, that's going to, I think it's going to change the game completely. Yeah. Um, longer term, I don't think we'll see too much of it immediately. You and I won't turn up in Switzerland next year, providing I'm invited. Um, and suddenly everything is going to be um, lab grown, but it's it was very clever. And I liked how they how Tag launched it in a big way. It wasn't, mm. here's a subtle watch. They went tall beyond, they went, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the crown itself yeah. was a diamond. Everything, it was um, grown into the case or mm. the case. So they were, they were very clever with that. And it just, that level of innovation coupled with something that is considered so, um, well, the element of a diamond is it's, it's so romantic yeah. um, and it's so personal as well. So whether it's 
sort of the sort of a Vacheron that we've got here and mm. um, Gege play very well and work very well with diamond setting and snow setting mm. there. I've been lucky enough to see the manufacturer and the work that goes into it. It's it's not a watchmaker that necessarily needs to do that. It's it's it's, it's a jewel. It's, it's an entirely separate discipline. Craft, yeah. yeah. And thank you for reminding me to bring up the fact that yeah, these are handmade products, and I think that's where you can enshrine that level of handwork. Is to say this is the setting that is done by our in-house team of setters, or we work very closely with the company that's set. And in some respects, you can look at a watch brand rather like a hotel. There are three-star hotels. We'll offer you lovely service and a great stay and a good night's sleep or those five-star hotels will have a spa on suite they'll have personal butlers you know they will have a car outside that will run you short errands so the highest in what brands and watchmaking are the five-star six-star i believe there's even a seven-star hotel somewhere in the world right now but what i'm saying is they have all of these qualities they have all of these competencies under their own roof and that's what they're bringing to market when they do specific gem setting it's interesting you say about um, lab grown diamonds it brings us back rather to buy metal because i think again i don't know if the jury's out on lab grown diamonds i know people have a lot of interest in to know well what constitutes a real diamond then is 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 it something that is actively dug out of the earth or is it something that's created by chemical fusion in the same way that diamond that was created millions of years ago was created. So there does seem to be an interesting uh, moment where there will be clearly a steady market for that brand diamond for all the reasons you could uh, we can establish. But it's how the brands work with it. And I think to your point about Tao Koya putting it center stage at their stand and watches and wonders this year, normally that might have been something that would have been behind a velvet Mm. and you'd be introduced allowed to come in gentle, and maybe have a look subtle, gentle subtle swiss. very swiss <laughs> and and again to but me, no <laughs> but no it's bang there so um i think as much as we, we we love to talk about models we talk about brands but we love to talk about their models fundamentally we love to talk about the movements we love to talk about complications we love to talk about all of the things that make watchmaking so sublime accuracy robustness um, reliability being one of the, one of the core um, attributes of a, of a mechanical watch, even more so than a than a, a, a smart watch where, where you find yourself charging it every three hours. But you know, fundamentally, these things are built to last. But to add materials into that conversation is really interesting because then you really are talking about the the um, the intrinsic qualities, the intrinsic abilities of each of these companies to bring real difference to their watches and to create real individual pieces that reflect quite clearly um, the individual taste of the wearers and there's so much choice now than there as ever has been and it's remarkable to see certain attributes which was perhaps a switch out of a dial color which would be met with extraordinary sort of discussion a few years ago now no one even blinks oris are doing incredible work particularly in dials oris do wonderful bronze mm. watches um, that no one even blinks now when a brand comes to market with a really entertaining, exciting colorway. And that's because we've been allowed and we've learned to accept and to understand that materials now are as important to the watch itself as who made it, where it was made and how it was made. Okay, uh, potentially a controversial question going back to the lab grown diamonds. Do you think it's the lethality of um, gem setting as we go forward? Well, because you can grow them to tolerances to such a degree that you can basically design the watch and grow the diamond, whereas before you had to find the diamond and then work out how you were going to integrate it into the watch. 
or perhaps design the watch around the diamonds that you'd found, there's, there's clearly going to be an absolute game change in the way um, decorating watches is going to go. It's going to open up the availability of diamond set watches to a much broader market. Will that affect the um, market in, in, shall we say, earthworked diamonds? I don't, I can't see that happening. I think there will, there'll be a displacement as we see in watchmaking itself yeah. between the high manufacturers and the high complications and 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 others but it is fundamentally going to change how we approach and how we look at the watches that we wear because we'll be quite comfortable wearing watches. people will be craving a flawed diamond <laughs> it means it's real well so, I, I, unfortunately it's not my area of expertise but i'm sure in time there'll be a, you'll be able to grow flaws into diamonds if, if we can't already so there will be a yellow no I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm joking for effect but i think to the point this this point about the next developments is an interesting one because even in composites even in the materials we've already talked about um these are now changing again because there, the there is a requirement to reflect an ecological remit around watchmaking. Um, obviously, as we know, they are one of the most sustainable objects on Earth. They last multiple mm -hmm. generations. Um, and they are, from dust to dust, probably one of the most sustainable products in the luxury sector, however, if not the most um, sustainable. But now we're already seeing how recycled steel at Panerai, for instance, is coming to market, how most brands now are looking at how they produce their straps, particularly if they're including um, 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 synthetics. So there's there's a there's a recycling and an upcycling story that's now coming into the material side of the business. Yeah. And then here we have the technical uh, developments around lab-grown diamonds, for instance. And these are fundamentally changing again the materials with which um, the brands are playing. And that's that's going to be a massive leap, I think. Okay. And uh, is precious metal a signifier more to the brand or the client? Mm. I, th I think. I think a you know, classic politician's answer, a combination, <laughs> a combination of the two, I think. I think I think the ability to mix materials, the ability to blend materials aesthetically and in a pleasing manner, um, and also the ability to do so in an iterative way that creates a watch that then becomes, I'm thinking, of course, of the, the Royal Oak by Metals of the 80s, for instance, um, that makes it instantly recognisable. Um, I think that services the brand. Um, it, reass it, it reassures everyone that there's a, it reinstates it restates the brand's excellence in that area. But in terms of the wearer, I think again it kind of tells a slightly different story depending on whether you are a modern composite person or whether you love the bimetals of the so we say the 80s and early 90s vintages and you like to see those returning or whether you really do want to go into the personalization of watch wearing which takes you into the world of bronze and silver and as you mentioned the softer metals we haven't really talked about white gold and palladium both highly that the elite metals not necessarily recognizable to the naked eye for the non um, uh, uh, watch fan, but fundamentally they are they are they carry their own internal energy, which is they are delicate materials. They do they they polish, but they don't particularly stand up to um, um, damage or abrasion. So you know we're seeing personalization in some uses of materials, a more trend cultural levy, which is being uh, met by the uh, by the bimetals that we're seeing coming back to the market, and then again we're seeing the um, the the sort of developmental contemporary route that horology is taking around composites and that is a constantly evolving area and that's bringing lots of storylines and with it again i think a lot of um, 
stories around ecology and sustainability in that market as well, which is slightly surprising given that they're largely um, synthetic materials. And along with that, I think it's quite interesting whilst the brands are trialling these and introducing them for a variety of reasons, whether it's to push around boundaries, as I've said, or whether you've referenced um, a sustainability, a huge topic. And you're right, as a product, watches actually probably are one that holds the most longevity, providing mm. you're maintaining it properly, yeah. regardless of whether it's quartz or automatic. Mm. Um, it's going to it's going to stand the test of time. I also like the loyalty to the just to simple precious metals. We talked yeah. about this when we did a, a review of Watches and Wonders from mm. um, this year where we were seeing a lot more yellow metal being introduced to a market where we're, we're, we're familiar with um, uh, white gold, um, um, rose. Are, rose is much more dominant as a precious metal in our mm. industry. And then we started seeing those little nods to yellow again. And they're not necessarily um, a fusion of, of, of types. They're just reintroducing or perhaps it's that um, callback that you said to the 80s. I do associate a yellow gold watch with the 80s. And the pinnacle is platinum, of yeah. course. I have a quick question. Mm. Do you know how much platinum there is in the world? No, no idea. Um, it will only cover your ankles in a Olympic-sized swimming pool. Good heavens. I was, I was quite surprised. <laughs> I thought it was a much bigger... I thought, I thought Wow, it's a, all yeah. the platinum mined in the world yeah. could only cover your ankles. Historically, to this day. It, which which is probably why it's a precious metal yeah because it's it's extraordinary isn't it mm. and we were touching on that, that that's reminded me of another point which is that the watch industry is, is benefiting from the fact that it is able to produce pieces in limited numbers which allows their execution in in materials metals such as um, platinum you could also regard the recycling of steel, which apparently is incredibly expensive at the moment, is only really an opportunity that open to a relatively niche business, such as the watch industry at the highest level. So really, the size and the, and the, indu the industry in the terms of its, its involvement in and its desire to um, work in, in precious and new uh, materials is really something that the watch industry can hold very true to itself because it's what it's always done. And it continues to do so. I had no idea that about platinum. I might have to go find myself a platinum watch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll watch the sale. That watch yeah. the sales uh, peak now. And you know, it's just one of those. Mm. Not that I'd actually put too much thought into it beforehand, but it was one of those stats. I was like, huh. Ah. Mm. When you can, for me, when you can visualise something in in a context of, I know how big an Olympic swimming pool is. Mm. Not that I can do lengths in them, um, but in terms of just covering your ankles, it's that's yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, it's it incredible. How does it alter, how does the metal of, uh, or the composite um, alter the identity of a watch, do you think? Oh, um, oh dramatically. I, I think, well, we can, we, the great thing is we're blessed with collections of watches, whether it's the Omega Speedmaster, um, the Tudor Black Bay, you know, we, we, we can look at collections and then you see the iteration across the materials and it completely and utterly um, redefines the watch. And it redefines the watch for the wearer as well, because you might not wear a, a stainless steel executed case um, in the same way or at the same time or even in the same manner as you would wear a decorated gem set version, or not the case of Tudor glue, but a model which has been treated in a slightly different way. We saw the DLC um, uh, Tudor Black Bay this year. I mean, it's a, it's a fundamentally, it's a different watch. And it's not different watch in the sense that it no longer belongs to that collection because every, every element of it still re resides 
in the, in the in the design of the watch, but it just it just gives it a completely different personality. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's when we're talking about what the, what what are the brands doing when they're working through different materials. It's about playing with the personalities. It's about saying, well, it's it can be this, but could it be that? Now, sometimes those gear changes don't really work, and you can see watches that are clearly too big being executed in in um, in, in finishes that offer a refinement that doesn't really sit very well with the scale of the piece and vice versa actually you can see um, pieces that were once dress watches being sort of um, re redefined through the use of materials into into being given the attributes more familiar to other um, types of watch watches but the personality shifts is i think what keeps the brands interested in doing it and i think it's what the customer's looking for as well because they want that opportunity to choose what sort of reflective um, idea that watch is giving out. On the flip side, do you think that some watches, if they're strong enough, can be um, made or um, enhanced, not enhanced, if there's a, if we're used to it in, a, in steel, if it's made in different materials, or any watch material that we're used to, it's going to stand the test of time, if the model itself is strong mm, enough? Yeah, I, I think it comes back to those attributes, which it has to be effectively a stellar design in its own right. Mm. Um, on a technical level, or indeed a practical level, if there are more elements that can be played with, I mentioned earlier about how, how complex some cases are actually constructed. If there are elements to the case that allow for different elements of the actual case to be switched out, as we see, particularly in Hublot, but obviously we know from the Audemars Piguet Royal Oak, um, and I think probably the shining example for this is the Santos uh, de Cartier, because that has all the emblematic elements of the Santos watch, but extraordinary ability to switch out different um, parts of the case and bezel and screws to give it um, different executions. So I think really that is where the quality lies. But you have to start with a watch that has its own in imprint. I mean, yeah. it has to exist in and of itself. And really, then, as the sky's the limit, or whatever cliche you wish to use, it really comes down to the sort of imagination of the designers. And obviously, I mean, this year, um, and we saw this lovely lacquer pieces in, in Cartier. Did you see that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're gorgeous. And um, Santos lacquered Santoses. I've never seen it. I've, well, they weren't. They weren't. They weren't specifically. If you weren't to know it was a Cartier, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily oh, identify. I, yeah. I, I think identify it as a Cartier. Yeah. However, I thought it was one of the strongest watches of the fair. And the yeah. year before, they'd done them as one shots anywhere only. Oh, right. Whereas this okay. year, they'd introduce it when they had the um, the green, the red, and the the blue yeah. dials and the black. They've introduced this year as a as a, as a core piece. But yeah. um, it's funny you should say sky's the limit. The question, and this was this <laughs> is. I was just thinking when I asked the question, what can I think of? You've used Santos. Um, if a watch is strong enough, can it be in any, can it be made in any? And I think the moon watch lends itself. Um, after we've seen them, sort of the, you know, the success of it, it's a bestseller for us. It's, mm. a, it's an icon around the world. It's, one of, it's the strongest watch for Amiga. Mm. But then they introduced it in the Sedna Gold, the Canopus and mm. the Moonshine this year, yeah. back to the Yellow Gold. Mm. And they keep enhancing it or change, not changing it, but they, they're, they're producing it in these other in these other other metal ways. So I think to your point, if the core of the watch is strong enough, yeah. sky's the limit for the brand. <laughs> Moon is the limit. Well absolutely yeah, yeah. literally. But um yeah, I mean you if can If you could choose any material, let, let's forget about what's currently out there. What if if the brands could come to you and say we're rendering a watch in this, what would you like it to be made from? I suppose it depends which watch. Okay. And I'm I'm trying so to buy myself time are, now. Thank you. I'm answer. trying to buy myself some time now. Um, 
um, it's like with any watch fair, the, I only remember the first thing I've seen and the last thing I've seen. Yeah. I am really taken with yellow gold at the moment right. because we haven't seen so much of it. So um, I think, um, and then what? Then, then which model would it, would it be in? Um, I'm, I'm taken with yellow gold, so I'm stepping away from which model would you, would okay, it be that's made fine. in? We can be but I think, neutral. yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Um, but also, it doesn't lend itself to 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 every to to, to everything. I mean, mm. um, this particular watch, Pano, I do do gold watches. Mm. They're very heavy. You mm. know, this you've already referenced is is incredibly light. Um, I think it almost does depend on the watch. I mean, this the the cuff that we've selected here by Panth um, the Panther Cartier's Panther. It's beautiful. It's a piece of jewellery. It's not a watch. Controversially, mm. and I, I, you know, I might up, I upset a few people by saying that. It's brilliant that it has the functionality of telling the time as well. But yeah. that what, what I absolutely love about that, and it's it's for me, it's very eighties. Um, it's um, very elegant. I think sort of French chic um, when I, when I look at that. So, but equally, that can't be made in that material. I don't think, and vice versa. So I yeah. think it depends. Yeah. The com the, the, to go back to your question, I think it depends on the watch. Yeah. But I'm going to ask you this your oh, question. No. Well, I was just thinking about, we've talked a lot about case materials, or rather I have, and to a certain extent around bracelets and how they allow for the materials to be switched out. But we haven't really talked about dials and hands and indices. And, and actually, I just reflecting again, we, we, we all stay brand neutral. But something, and it was triggered by your mention of the moon watch and also the sky. I love asteroids. I love any meteorites. I love anything that's come from out of space and mm -hmm. has now ended up on a watch. And I, I know it's come into the Earth's atmosphere in order to do so. But I just love the idea that this thing has been buzzing through the universe for millions of years. And then I'm wearing a sliver of it yeah. as a dial of a watch. And we haven't really talked about how materials do really impact on dial design and how... Um, obviously, we talk a lot about chronographs and particularly those with contrast subdials, and they can be silvered against a black or a white dial. And, and Zenith, of course, the El Primero, they have always used different colored subdials to reflect um, the different iterations of the El Primero um, chronomaster. But, you know, there are so many elements to mixed materials in watchmaking. It's almost another talk to be talking about what lies within the watch. But if we go into skeletonizing now, you know, the skeletonizing is using more and more synthetics within the construction of the bridges and the barrels. And so fundamentally, there's no end. We are going down a long rabbit hole now of how materials affect the very nature of a watch right down to the construction of the movement. So really to separate, as, as we haven't done, but to separate materials from a watch model and the movement that it contains is, is I think, is an elementary mistake. It, it should be treated as the third leg on the stool. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, meteorite, there's more platinum in meteorite than there is in um, on Earth. Really? Yeah, in terms of, yeah. The, 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 wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a, but I, I, I'm a big fan of the natural materials as well. We yeah. see that in dials. Obviously, they've become slightly harder to secure anything that's got a very natural element to them it's yeah. going to have just just by the nature of it but um i'm always struck by um, watch designers who work in wood i think wood is probably the one material that doesn't lend itself for my to my view mm -hmm. probably practically to the construction of watch cases dials and straps. Well, i was so or, i was searching i couldn't think of anything that commercially sprang to mind that's wood um, has found its way onto dials i'm trying to think of the most recent example i can't write off the top of my head but 
Gerald Genter, for instance, uh, had, did did some design as he did in bronze and and, and all precious metals, but he also uh, executed a watch in wood. I think fundamentally, it's an interesting answer to a question that no one has ever asked: Can I get one in wood? So it's, that's probably the only material that I think you wouldn't really want to. I, I personally wouldn't want to um, proceed down that route of market, but virtually anything else, I think it comes down to the aesthetic principles alone. I mean, who would not want a beautiful patch around that docks is fantastic with the high vis orange strap and, and, and uh, dial. Yeah, we've seen this brand explode into the market mm. um, recently. It does well for us in this, both on, on both sides, of, you know, in the US and here, and um, it's, they're, they're very loyal to, the, mm. um, to carbon fibre and um, but they're, they're diving watches as well, so perfect because of yeah. the, the weight, etc. So I think those ties back to what we were talking about earlier, the combination of what the functionality of the watch is. That's mm. not to say that you can't have a slightly more elegant watch that isn't carbon, etc. But it's that duality in how, how the brands just really kind of play and tickle with some ideas and introduce um, what they come out with and how, they, how the elements work together. Yeah, and, and it's not purely for aesthetic reasons. Orange, as we know, is the last colour that can be on the spectrum yeah. underwater. So, that, so orange, that pop colour, which is also incredibly popular right now, is also a practical dive watch colour to, to wear. So, you know, everything's still... I think there's two points, as you say, Faye, there's the model itself has to be intrinsically of a standard that, that lends itself to be, being built into a collection offering multi, multiple materials. But fundamentally, it also, with, with respect, I think this is where we're coming back to where we started actually, Faye, which is talking about how people feel about certain bike metal watches. And there has always been a suspicion that a watch that was built for a tool watch purpose should remain in a hardened steel case for that reason. And when you blend gold and soft metals um, into a tool watch case, then you're kind of undercutting what that the job of that watch once was. Now, there will people will tell you well, that's complete baloney. You know, it's an attractive watch, and they will just they will just work on the aesthetics and say no, it looks beautiful like this. So there will always be this trade-off. I think the beauty of the conversation we're having is inevitably there will always be a tension between what people feel a model, a collection should represent, and within that, the materials that have been chosen. How far do they support that model's um, reason to exist to what degree do they amplify that reason to exist and to what degree do they actually take that model into a whole new uh, you're talking universe. about pure purist versus commerciality yeah and i don't know very many people that wear divers watches and there are a lot on the market who dive mm. i don't know many people who know <laughs> how to set or you use their gmt watches again yeah. various brands have them mm. so i'm going to I'm going to say that the commercial market is much bigger than the purist and I would love to watch. Actually, that's probably yeah. potentially something we suggest um, uh, Watches and Wonders for next year, perhaps, is that they have a panel of sort of the sort of uttermost yeah. purists and uh, having a debate on various conversations yeah. on these points. Uh, to, to that point, and the, the purists on these matters are not the people who would use those watches for the purposes they were made either. So it's not as if a professional diver is calling out those models for not being made in steel. Exactly. They, they, the professional divers, frankly, tend to wear um, dive computers these days rather than dive watches. For, by and large, so fundamentally, it is only a it's it's a bar it's a bar stool conversation we're having now, very frankly. But there are people who do that. But I, I bring it back to my point: it's that tension, it's the tension when you blend materials, it's that tension when you present something that has appeared in one iteration and in another iteration. That's what we feed off. I think that's what we feed off when we go to um, Watches and Wonders and when we go to any launch. We look to see wow, how, what have they done, why have they done it, and does it work? And that is, does it work for us? 
Will it work for them? Does it work for the marketplace? That's the tension that the materials brings and that's what keeps it fascinating. And in terms of our jobs, it's almost, we're making these decisions on behalf of sort of all our consumers and our clients and your readers, um, which does make it very much a barstool conversation because mm. who, who, who are we to decide? Yet we have a very privileged job of doing so in some respects. So to wind it up, <laughs> I'm going to ask you what your favorite watch is here today. Ooh, wow. Um, and why, and then um, and then we can Josh, go for I'm, that drink. I'm, well, <laughs> to the bar. I'm sport for choice, actually. I've, I've been really impressed with what Panerai have been doing recently. I think, I think their, uh, their commitment to, as I said earlier, their commitment to uh, upcycling and recycling is in incredible. They, it's always been a, a chunky old watch. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it, it's not a watch that every person can wear. Um, I know Panerai, the Panerista, will wear nothing else. But fundamentally, now these executions are coming in lighter and lighter composites. Um, I think it's a fa I think it's a fabulous piece. Um, I have a real soft spot for Tudor. I think Tudor have done remarkable things. And again, we discussed the silver piece that they produced recently. They are continuing to push the boundaries of what a watch can be and should be, and it's all done within within a price frame mm -hmm. and a quality setting that I think is relatively unrivaled. Um, we mentioned the uh, Talcoya fully decorated lab grown diamond piece. I look forward to seeing that in the marketplace. And I can't wait to see people wearing it. I think if you're asking me, I think the Cartier cuff is something that um, will, I say this with respect for every other material here, will probably aesthetically outlive them all. Each in their own way, as we said earlier, has, has the ability to last a lifetime, if not several. Um, I think from a design perspective, that is, that's timeless. And I think you know, anything on this tray is, is worthy of investigation. So when I asked you what your favorite was, you can't choose one. And there's, there, there's, there's several, I, which is why, well, it was, um, was a really um, a fun sort of um, topic for us to be able to talk about. I really enjoyed making some of the selections because there was so much variety. Um, and I remember we were talking like, is, this, is, this, is, there, is there a lot to talk about when we were, when we were talking about materials? Uh, yes, there is. I feel like we could go on for a lot longer. Thank you so much for joining us, your expertise and um, your knowledge on and your opinions on all of these products is invaluable. It's always a real pleasure to work with you, Bill. And should you wish to um, send me a Christmas present, um, I will, I'll, I'll take the cuff. It's done. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Faye. Thank you for listening to the Calibre podcast. We do hope you've enjoyed it. To watch this video in full or to discover more exciting horological content, subscribe to the Watches of Switzerland YouTube channel. To listen to more of our podcasts, please subscribe to the Calibre podcast on Apple and Spotify.